Amanda, remember that time we celebrated Black History Month? Welcome to Remember That Time, an historical podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And I'm your host, Anna Webb, and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out about their favorite moments in history. And Amanda, it's Black History Month. It sure is. I'm so excited. Me too. Um, Disclaimer for our listeners, in case you didn't figure it out, um, if it wasn't super obvious, we are two white women. Yes, we Um, are. (laughs) So we are not authorities on any of these stories, but we love these stories. And so we wanted to, to tell them during Black History Month. We're a history podcast. Yes. We should. And I think it's so cool that we have like these history months that we can take like that time to tell these stories. And so since our since we are a storytelling podcast, yes. we thought it would be appropriate. Yes, yes. So today's episode, our first of Black History Month, we're gonna talk about Marcus Garvey. I'm very excited. Um I read that the theme for this Black History Month is what what did I tell you it was? Let me look it up again. Okay. Um, Because I don't want to read it wrong. Oh, um, Black Migrations. Cool. So this was uh, one of the things they listed was sort of inspiring it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I should look into that more and... And um, and do the podcast on it. So we're going to talk about Marcus Garvey. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. If you were looking for your drink update for today, it is coffee. Oh, right, right, right. I am, as always, drinking water. <laughs> it's a uh, today we have a, a minty a minty chocolate coffee Ooh-hoo-hoo. situation. I don't know. Wow. It's from Trader Joe's. Um, Ooh, and that sa- fun sound you're hearing in the background of uh, my audio would be someone starting their car. In the <laughs> Oh my gosh, I can't believe that it sounds like that. That's so weird. Uh-huh. I feel bad for whoever's car that is. It's not great. It sounds like it sounds like a fan belt not working. Yeah. This is this is the fun new game of the podcast. It's, What's what that cool sound? College sounds are happening in Amanda's background. What's that dorm sound with Amanda? What's that dorm sound? <laughs> so should we get into it? Yeah, shoot. Okay, so Marcus Messiah. I don't want to say it wrong. Garvey Jr. is born August 17th, 1887 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. His father was a stonemason and his mother was a domestic worker, which just means like a house servant, basically. Mm. He was the youngest of 11 children. Wow. And only he and his sister, Indiana, survived until adulthood. Wow. I don't know any more details on that. The 1800s, man. I c- yeah, I couldn't find anything else about like the other siblings. I probably could have if I had dug a little deeper, but I was taking my notes while I was at work. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Never happened. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Shh. <laughs> um, at age 14, he goes to Kingston. He kind of decided to, to leave home because he wanted to work. So he becomes a printer's apprentice. He starts becoming involved in the labor union for print tradesmen there. So that's kind of how he starts to get a taste for activism. And um, he gets very into union workers' rights. Right, right. He takes part in a strike in 1907. It was not successful, but 
<laughs> he was there, and that's kind of what matters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he... Something's got to get him going. Exactly, exactly. Everybody needs a jumping off point. Yes. So he travels through Central America uh, starting in 1910. He's got family there. He works as a timekeeper on a banana plantation in Costa Rica. Ooh. What a job. What a job indeed. A t- I wonder what he did. A timekeeper like yeah, I don't totally timing know what the means. other workers or? Or he probably told them when to break or when hmm. the day began and ended. I don't totally know. Huh. I just thought it was interesting he worked on a banana plantation. Yeah, that's cool. What a lovely sound I just made. Sorry. <laughs> Gross. I'll back at it again with the uh, sick web system. It never ends. I'm actually all right right now. We'll see how long that lasts. Ugh. Congratulations, truly. I'm well, suffering. you know, it's flu season on a college campus, so it probably won't last long. We'll be playing a very different game of Guess That College Town. So. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> Um, in 1912, he leaves Jamaica and moves to London. He lives there for about two years. He's really interested in the conflict between Ireland and England. Hey, same. <laughs> yeah, right? I was I was reading that and I was like, ooh, Amanda too. Uh, we are hanging out like in the same time period a whole heck of a lot. I know, and we're not doing it on purpose. Just no, we just we keep are. finding interesting things to talk about and they all happen at the same time in the world. Yes, it's providing a lot of callbacks for our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> a complete accident. It's so weird when I when we start doing research and we realize, oh, that's the same time as this other thing that we talked about already. Yeah, like, yeah we should probably branch out a little bit there. <laughs> hey, we made it all the way to the 1980s with Queen. <laughs> hey, history is long and expansive. We'll figure it out. While he's in London, he attends Birkbeck College, which I know nothing about, but he uh-huh. takes classes in law and philosophy. Okay. He works for the African Times and Orient Review, which is a pan-African newspaper, and he leads debates um, in Hyde Park at Speaker's Corner, uh, cool. so like on the street. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, in 1914, he returns to Jamaica, and this is where he forms the Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, which is what he's best known for, is forming mm-hmm. this organization. There's a lot that comes out of this association like a whole bunch which we'll get into a little bit (laughs) as we go go along along. he's heavily influenced by booker t washington um in his autobiography up from slavery he's like very into booker t washington so (laughs) washington's got this belief of african americans not benefiting from political activism like that they should uh focus on building themselves up from, right. from within their own community, I guess, is how I would put it. I don't know. Yeah, I remember I took a, like, late U.S. history class last semester, and we talked a lot about Booker T's beliefs and stuff. Yeah, and he starts a, a training school, an industrial training school in Alabama that was all about, like, these young people coming in and, and working on building themselves up and, and sort of self-help, I guess. Right. So Garvey at first is like all for these principles. He's like, yes, love it. Into it. Booker T. Washington, my hero, my dude. (laughs) Um, And he starts encouraging his fellow Jamaicans to to sort of take on these beliefs and, and focus on building their character and working hard and not worrying so much about 
politics. He corresponds with Washington for a while, and then he decides to travel to the U.S. on March 23rd, 1916. By the time he gets there, Washington has passed away. Because he actually died November 14th, 1915. So, I mean, he, he decided to go after Washington had died, but he never got to meet him. That's sad. Yeah. But, you know, he got to write to him, which is more than most people could ask. Well, that is very cool. It's just that he worked, like, so hard for so long, and he didn't get to... Yeah, yeah. But when he went to the States, he wanted to go on a lecture tour and raise funds that he would use to build a school in Jamaica that was, like, modeled after the Institute in Alabama. Oh, okay. Which what is not what happened immediately. But, right. <clears throat> so he travels through the U.S. He starts to observe the sorts of things that African Americans are going through. He sees them going through Jim Crow. He sees a shift in the population from the rural South to like the urban areas in both the North and South, but they move to more urban areas because of those laws. Right. And he's seeing all these African Americans who had served in the war, but aren't getting anything back for that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are the race riots start in East St. Louis between 1917 and 1919 and it's after that same it's in that same vein you know we're not being treated well even though we went out and died in a a war for you people so well and before they went to war they got a lot of promises saying if you serve this this and this will happen and then when they came back well that's why they served happened right because they didn't have to yeah oh man that's just gonna be this whole episode it's just a lot of sighing yeah there's a lot hold on i need a coffee break (laughs) i'll take a little a little water break as well today i'm drinking out of a mug that has tina belcher lying down and then when it heats up it says uh such a good mug such a good that's like really fitting the mood today (laughs) Uh uh-huh i had onion for lunch and i can still taste it oh that's nice (laughs) i'm trying to the water's trying to help but it's just not what are we talking about you were giving an update on sort of your situation Oh, boy. Oh, no. Now my glasses are all smudged. Oh, God. All right. Let's get back to it. Okay. So Garvey moves to New York, and he takes on his old habit of speaking on street corners. He loves to speak on a street corner. Uh, May 9th, 1916, he holds his first public appearance, uh, first public lecture at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. You, You know, that old standby. (laughs) <laughs> and then he starts on a 38-state speaking tour. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. So May 1917, Garvey and 13 others from the first UNIA division outside of Jamaica, mm-hmm. they, they st- set it up in NYC. So this is the first UNIA in the States. They start spreading the message of black nationalism and an eventual return to Africa. For all Uh people of African descent. So this is kind of their belief at this point. That African Americans should all return. Well Africans from any country should all return to Africa. And have their own country. And their own like economic, social, political power there. But they're also promoting all of those freedoms. Where they are. For for where they are now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did any of that make sense? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The three main components to their message are unity, pride in the African cultural heritage, and complete autonomy. Right. So it's like we want freedoms where we are, but the long-run goal 
is for us to have our own continent. Basically. Right. So July 2nd, 1917, the East St. Louis riots break out. We talked mm-hmm. a little bit about it before. On July 8th, Garvey delivers an address titled The Conspiracy of the East St. Louis Riots at Lafayette Hall in Harlem. So important address for him. Mm-hmm. Gets a pretty big crowd for that one. August 17th, 1918, so not too long after, he starts publishing the Negro World newspaper in New York. He's like very famous for this publication. Mm-hmm. He works as an editor without pay until November of 1920. Wow. Yeah, he uses the paper to encourage growth of the UNIA, so he's trying to get more members. Sure. By June 1919, membership has grown to over 2 million, according to the UNIA records. Like, in a lot of my research, there was a lot of, like, this is according to their records. Their record-keeping wasn't great, so we don't know if that's Ah. actually (laughs) the truth. But still, that's a... Even if that's not the exact number, that's a lot of growth for just a year of operation. Well, yeah. Well, it's a year of operation for the, the paper, it's a couple years of operation for um, the branch that's in New York. Right, okay. But still, it's like a couple years. It's a lot, mm-hmm. if that's an accurate number. Yeah. And it's this is, this is really cool because this is way earlier than you, we usually associate with any sort of civil rights movement. Well, that's the thing. It's like he was sort of the first to lead a public organized movement for civil rights for Africans, not just in America, but mainly in America, but his goal was for Africans everywhere. Right. He laid a lot of that groundwork that people used later on. Oh, yeah, definitely. So in June of 1919, June 27th, the UNIA creates its own business called the Black Star Line. It's the first business they begin out of this organization. It's not the only one. Mm-hmm. They- did several others but this this is the first one and it's the most interesting and it sort of loops around so okay here's the whole thing of it so it's a shipping line to facilitate the transportation of goods and eventually african americans throughout the african global economy okay so it's basically like a way for them to get back to africa in the long run. So it's going to focus on trade, transportation of goods, but eventually the goal is to get people back to Africa. Okay. So a lot of the ships that they purchased were in really bad conditions, like very bad. Uh-huh. There was like one that I, I read a story where one like, I don't know, caught on fire or something. I can't really remember. I didn't put it in my notes. I forgot. <laughs> um, but it was not, it was not ideal. They were really in really bad condition. Lots of mismanagement. And here's, I'm going to read a little bit of a quote here. So the Black Star Line at one point is infiltrated by agents of J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation, which was kind of the start of all of our investigation bureaus, sort of. Oh, <laughs> yeah. good. Including the first African-American agent hired by the Bureau, James Warmly uh, Jones, mm-hmm. James Warmly Jones. And uh, um, some other agents who apparent, who reportedly sabotaged one of the ships by throwing foreign matter into the fuel and damaging the engines. So that's really cool. Um, So why did Hoover infiltrate the ship? Well, why do you think? (laughs) Well, I was wondering if there was like a specific reason or just general racism. No, they were just investigating him. Okay. You know, he's a black man who's successful from Jamaica. 
th- it doesn't help that he's an immigrant. So right. they were probably just investigating him because of that. Uh, by by all the accounts that I've read, that seems to be the case. Okay. So in 1919, J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau of Investigation charged Marcus Garvey and three others with mail fraud. We'll kind of get back to it here in a bit. Okay. Um, but part of it was that they had purchased a ship for the Black Star Line, and it was pictured in their brochures. They didn't technically own it. So oh. the fact that they didn't own the ship when they put when they put out these pamphlets apparently warranted mail fraud. Oh, okay. So mm, a little shaky at best. But only Garvey was technically charged. So they, you know, him and three officers were arrested, but his were the only charges that stuck. And the Black Star Line ceases sailing in February 1922. And we'll loop back around to his arrest um, here in a bit, but I just wanted to give a little more background on him before we do that. The basics of that situation. Right. So, let's see. So that wasn't the only investigation of the UNIA or its businesses. Who's surprised? Yeah. Edwin P. Kilroe, who was the ADA in New York, began an investigation into their activities. He didn't file any charges, but he brought Garvey in numerous times for questioning and Garvey was super not into that. So he like wrote an editorial an expose. Oh, where he really laid into them for being corrupt. <laughs> nice. And then they charged they arrested him and charged him for libel, but then they dismissed the charges when he brought a retraction. Ah. Yeah. Um, October 14th, 1919, an assassination attempt. Oh, boy. A man named George Tyler comes into the office and he's like, Kilro sent me. And then he pulls a gun and he shoots him four times. Well, he fires four shots. He wounds him in the right leg and then the scalp. Oh, my gosh. Tyler was arrested and then like and then committed suicide like the next day. Wow. He jumped from the third tier of the Harlem jail while he was being held. Wow. Yeah. So that was a lot. That is a lot to happen to him very quickly. Mm-hmm. So by August 1920, according to the UNIA's numbers, they have over 4 million members. Wow. Garvey is elected as a provisional president of Africa in 1920 by the members of the UNIA. Huh. He dresses in a military uniform with a plumed hat. Well, I like I like that important detail. Yeah, and a plumed hat because they clearly have the authority to elect a president of an entire continent that they don't own. That they don't own and aren't on. It's a sure. little odd, but you know, it's part of their movement. It was only provisional anyway. It, right, right. They have an international convention, the UNIA, August 1st, 1920, Garvey Speaks, at Madison Square Garden, and over 25,000 people attend. Whoa. So the movement was huge, actually. Yeah, he had, like, a lot of influence. Yeah, and members of other unions, like nursing unions and stuff like that, they they were big fans of Garvey, and they uh-huh. would come to his, his speeches and his lectures. Wow. Well, and this is, like what, only four or so years after he moves to America and he already has, like, this much mm-hmm. influence. That's very impressive. Yeah, well, particularly in New York, he has a pretty big influence because that's where he's right. you know, located. But, you know, it's the Harlem Renaissance. So, right. you know, it's a time when African Americans are really... Like embracing their embracing own culture. Their, yeah. yeah, embracing their own culture and trying to amplify it. So, you know, he, he it was almost a right place, right time kind of thing. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah. 
1919, Garvey founds uh, the Negro Factories Corporation. So this is another corporation as part of the UNIA. <clears throat> so they build factories in industrial centers of the U- the U.S., Central America, West Indies, and Africa to manufacture basically every marketable item. Wow. And that's incredible that he made factories so many places. Like, that, oh, that yeah. really speaks to his movement and how true he, like, how much he stuck to that. It's a massive operation, like, logistically. Wow. And mm-hmm. they basically want, you know, they want economic development in those areas. And yeah. they want Africans to be in charge of that development. Absolutely. They it So they also had, like, a chain of grocery stores, restaurants, uh Laundry places, tailor tailor shops, dressmaking shops, publishing houses, that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. Garvey really wants to develop Liberia. So Liberia is, you know, founded by the American Colonization Society in the 19th century, basically as a colony where free blacks from the U.S. can go. Right. So that's like, for Garvey, that's like, yes, that's what that's we want. That's where he wants to be. Yeah. yeah. So he launches a program for Liberia in 1920 to build like colleges and industrial plants and railroads and that kind of thing. But it was abandoned by the mid 1920s after Europe was like, we don't love this. Right. I don't know all the details about like the process of Europe opposing it to the point where he would ab- abandon it, but right. Apparently, it was pretty heavy opposition. Who's surprised? Mm-hmm. Classic Europe, always meddling. <laughs> And, and and Garvey wanted to have gotten away with it too. If it worked for those for that meddling, meddling Europeans. Europe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dumb one. Oh boy, that, I liked it. I thought it was Thank good. you. <laughs> I'm wearing my Velma glasses. I got it. <laughs> Same. In 1921, there's a national convention of the UNIA uh, at Madison Square Garden, and over 50,000 people attend. Wow. Let's talk a little bit more about Garvey's personal beliefs. Okay. Things maybe get a little touchy. Okay. Garvey is. How do I put it? Well, he's not super into communism. That's for sure. Okay. Well, in okay. I'm gonna Some read. The, I'm gonna read this into that. quote though. I'm gonna read this quote. Okay. Garvey felt that communism would be more beneficial for whites by solving their own political and economic problems, but would further limit the success of blacks rising together. Communists were, as he saw it, white men who wanted to manipulate blacks so they could continue to have control over them. Well, Which is not a far reach. Yeah, no. At all. I mean, it's certainly not like a main pillar of communism, but communism could be used for that purpose very easily. But so could anything else. Communism was never used as it was intended in the first place anyway. That is true. That is true. But he was obviously much more of a capitalist. Yeah. Well, he he is using capitalism to try and, like, reclaim black, like, culture. Sure. And so it makes sense that that's sort of where he would lie. Here's where we get a little mm, touchy. So he's very into white groups who promote sending blacks back to Africa. Uh-huh. So like he met with a KKK leader in Atlanta oh. in 1922 to talk about wow. their views on like stuff. Now, in his view, he he wants the equality portion. He just wants the black community to have it for themselves separate of the white community. Yes. I don't love the way he went about it. 
Yeah, that's the thing about the Back to Africa movement, especially in this time, is like, it is totally understandable why that was the point of view that a lot of people took, like, that makes complete sense. But so many white people were also saying, send them back to Africa, we don't want them here, which is like, not the greatest. It was like (laughs) the same words with a different message behind it. Yes, and it was like, difficult to walk that line. But he was very, like, Okay, we could work together on it when... Uh, At least he tried. <laughs> I don't know, though. It was like... He was very aggressive. I don't know. I can't really speak to it. Right. Because that's not my heritage, but I'm yes. just here to tell the story. But that... Yeah. Mm, touchy. He he becomes a bit of a rival of W.E.B. Du Bois. I do remember this specifically from my history class. Yeah, so Du Bois does not like Garvey's approach. He thinks it's too aggressive. He... Basically, sees it. I'm just going to read a- another quote. Du Bois considered Garvey's program of complete separation a capitulation to white supremacy, a tacit admission that blacks could never be equal to whites. And this was the exact issue that a lot of people had with that yeah. movement. Like, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, again, I can't totally speak to it, but I do see Du Bois' point of view as well. I totally see both sides. And like that, I feel like, is very much a decision that at that time people would have had to make personally, like, where they fell on that. Totally. That's totally true. Garvey thought that Du Bois was prejudiced against him, you know, himself, because Garvey was, like, a Caribbean with darker skin, and he thought that Du Bois was just prejudiced against him, basically. It meant that Garvey and the NAACP did not get along very well. Right. Garvey even accused Du Bois of, of paying conspirators to sabotage the Black Star Line to destroy his reputation, oh, wow. which I don't believe was the truth, but, you know. Oof. So let's get back to Garvey's mail fraud trial. Ooh, right. So the trial begins May 18th, 1923. Oh, wow. It took a long time for that trial. Yeah, though. well, American legal justice system wasn't any better back then, my friend. <laughs> Ew. He defends himself. Okay. The trial ends June 23rd of 1923, so also a long trial. He's sentenced to five years and $1,000 in fines and court fees. Wow. And again, uh, he blames Jewish jurors uh. and the Jewish federal judge, Julian Mack, for his conviction. And he thinks that they are biased because they object politically to him meeting with the imperial wizard of the kkk which is the dumbest name ever by the way oh my god! every gosh. time somebody I was, says I'm it i'm so glad I'm you like, said that because i was going to you really call them imperial wizards like they call themselves did a 12 year old make that up probably oh my gosh no in the star kid musical firebringer <laughs> the like religious head calls himself the whatever wizard he's like the I supreme egghead it's wizard. the same thing as when i hear the terms in like scientology yeah, like you've just made those words up. You made them confess all up. your crimes. What? You're who are you? Like, what are you talking about? Ugh, Scientology's gonna come for me now. I don't care. Yes, yes. Oh my god, if we could make Scientology an enemy of this podcast, I'd be so oh, into that. I would just feel like we really reached a good point in our lives and careers and brands. I so agree. <laughs> I believe Leah Remini. Is that enough? I think it is. Oh boy. Could they could, could they declare me a suppressive now? Ugh. Oh it's my the dumbest gosh. terminology I've ever heard in my life. A quick Scientology. Ugh, if you people have not watched Leah Remini's series in Scientology, ugh, do it immediately. I actually have never seen it. Oh my that. god. 
It's excellent. I know, man. That's not what we're here to talk about, but it's excellent. (laughs) Anywho, so Garvey spends three months in Tombs Jail in Manhattan waiting for bail. While he's on bail, he continues to travel and speak. And he's like, I'm totally innocent. Definitely didn't do this. Everybody who convicted me is super biased and corrupt. And I'm an innocent man. Which was true, probably. Well, I mean, I don't know. If the... If the charge of mail fraud was legitimate, then yeah, he would be responsible. I just don't know how yeah. legitimate it was because I didn't delve too deeply into the details well, of the case. Well, and it is it is also probably true that all of those people were biased against him. Well, and some of them. Yeah. Probably not the Jewish jurors and judge. No. No. That he vehemently claimed were were opposed to him, but yeah, some of them probably were. The people who arrested him definitely were. He uh, tries to appeal several times over the course of about 18 months. I assume he basically runs out of appeals. He's taken into custody um, and starts serving his sentence at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary on February 8th, 1925. I don't know why his sentence was meant to be held in Alabama. I couldn't really find why that happened. Or I'm sorry, not Alabama, Atlanta. I read it wrong. But that's where he served. Two days after he starts serving his sentence, he writes the first message to the Negroes of the world from Atlanta prison. And this is a quote from it that became super famous. Look for me in the whirlwind or the storm. Look for me all around you. For with God's grace, I shall come and bring with me countless millions of black slaves who have died in America and the West Indies and the millions in Africa to aid you in the fight for liberty, freedom, and life. Wow. That's a good one. That's a good one. And this is, that's so interesting because, like, you know, when you think about, like, all of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mm. letters from prison, he's always prison for, you know, like, protests or whatever. And he was in prison for mail fraud. Like, yeah. that's, that's so odd. I thought about that earlier today, actually, when I was thinking about my notes. Like, the differences yeah. are very interesting. But yeah. but MLK would, would have never done anything that he did without Garvey first. Uh-huh. You know? Well, and also hit Garvey's letters from prison probably also inspired King. It's just like, it's so interesting to see what different situations they were in and how they, the similar ways and the different ways that they handled them. Oh, yeah. King really had a an admiration for Garvey. He and yeah. Coretta went and like visited his memorial and... Um, Mm -hmm. I think he gave a speech there at one point, but I can't totally remember. So Garvey's sentence is commuted by Calvin Coolidge, um, and he's released November of 1927, but then he's deported back to Jamaica via New Orleans. In 1928, he travels to Geneva to present the petition of the Negro race, and he presents it to the League of Nations, outlining the abuses of Africans worldwide. Wow. September 1929, he founded the People's Political Party, so this is Jamaica's first modern political party. I'm pretty sure it still exists today, as far as I know. Um, it focused mostly on workers' rights, education, and aid to the poor. July 1929, the Jamaican property of the UNIA is seized on orders of the Chief Justice. I can't remember why, but it was. And he received a prison sentence for contempt of court when he was when he spoke out about the corrupt judges in this case. So was really not taking any of those arrests sitting down. No, sir. Uh-uh. Um, in April 1931, Garvey creates the Edelweiss Amusement Community. Or, I'm sorry, company. I can't read. 
<laughs> which is like a company to help artists earn their livelihood from their craft. That's cool. So lots of Jamaican entertainers that are very famous in, in Jamaica got their start there That's and were awesome. able to, yeah, to build their careers from that. He really did just do everything. Yeah, he kind of did a little bit of everything. That's impressive. He seems like one of those people who could never not be busy. Yeah. You know? Well, when, like, I'm just even looking on this, like, page of your notes and how close together all the years are. Yeah. And how, like, quickly he works. Yeah, that's true. It is very, like, next thing, next thing, next thing. Yeah. In 1935, he returned to London. He lived and worked there until his death in 1940. In 1938, he created the School of African Philosophy in Toronto to train UNIA leaders. So it was basically Mm -hmm. a school for, for members of his organization. June 10th, 1940, he dies in London at the age of 52 after having suffered two strokes. Wow. There were, there were travel restrictions in place because of World War II. So his body was interred in the lower crypt in St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery um, in London. And his body wasn't moved back to Jamaica until 1964. Wow. That's so recent. Yeah. All of your, all of your things so far, by the way, like all of your episodes have been like, and then they found the body or moved the body like years later, all of them, every single one of them. I don't know how this keeps happening. I just realized that when you said that, I was give like, you an insight to wait, my Anna interests. has said this sentence before. Like, these are my interests. My interests are people who died a long time ago <laughs> and, and his bodies had to get moved because of their tragic it's, death. It's a niche subject, you know? I'm just like, not a lot of people are into that. So it's just, I'm just like different. I just can't believe that like. I'm just like a different type common, of girl. The only common theme in all of your. I did not episodes. notice that. I can't believe you saw that pattern. I just, it came to me very suddenly right now. Oh boy. So the government pro- proclaims Garvey Jamaica's first national hero. He's reinterred at National Heroes Park in Kingston. There's a shrine to him there. Basically, mm-hmm. basically um, it's a monument that consists of a tomb at the center of a raised platform in the shape of a black star, which is a symbol he used a lot. And behind it, there's a peaked and angled wall that houses a bust of him. And it was added to the park in 1956. Um, and then it was relocated after the construction of the monument uh, back to the wall. The monument was designed by G.C. Hodges, while the bust was designed by Alvin T. Marriott. I don't know who those people are, but I wanted to give them credit. So let's talk a little bit about, like, his influence. His legacy. Legacy. The UNIA flag, the red, black, and green flag, was adopted as the black liberation flag. So Mm -hmm. you've probably seen it. It's the Pan-African flag, too. The National Shipping Line of Ghana was named the Black Star Line in honor of him. The national football team in Ghana is also called the Black Stars. That's cool. I love the national football team of of Ghana, by the way. Very (laughs) into it. And the the flag of Ghana is also inspired by the, the Black Star. That is incredible. The Obama administration did not pardon Garvey. They declined in 2012 because their policy was that uh, they don't consider posthumous pardons. Okay. So that's just a fact. Rastafari considers Garvey uh, a religious prophet. Wow. And they sometimes consider him the reincarnation of St. John the Baptist. 
That is very interesting. Yeah. Huh. They also consider a lot of his statements to be the prophecy of the crowning of, I'm going to definitely say this wrong, <laughs> Hail Selassie the first of Ethiopia. So a ruler in Ethiopia. Garvey didn't identify with the Rastafari movement. And in fact, here's a callback. He was raised Methodist. Oh my gosh! He went on to become a Roman Catholic, but he was raised Methodist. They're everywhere. So another theme, another call of our podcast is Methodists everywhere. We should have just made a Methodist podcast. For real. There's a deep well. We'll bring our dad, the member of the United Methodist Conference on for an episode at some point. I'm sure. Just talk about. Oh, my gosh. I would love for dad to just talk about John Wesley. Oh, would love it. (laughs) The members of the Moorish Science Temple of America honor Marcus Garvey as St. John the Baptist like. That is so interesting to me. Yeah, their their founder, who they consider a prophet, um, Noble Drew Ali, was, was heavily inspired by him. Huh. Uh, in 2012, Jamaican government declared August 17th as Marcus Garvey Day. So on August 17th, we can celebrate Marcus Garvey Day. Cool. The Nation of Islam was also inspired by Garvey. Their goals are to improve the spiritual, mental, social, and economic condition of African Americans in the U.S., and all of humanity. Um, so very much along the lines of, of Garvey's beliefs. So it's very similar to his like mission statement for the UNIA. Yeah, and his beliefs and activism are known as Garveyism. So it's like the ideology about African-American empowerment and unification. So all of that weaves into these other religions who were heavily inspired by him. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. He's an interesting dude. He's an interesting dude. I, I wish I could have found out more about like his life in Jamaica. There wasn't a lot on it. Yeah. But he's very interesting. And there's a lot that it's like, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. But <laughs> again, but I think that's he inspired. Cool that, like, that's a part of his story. Yeah. That he did stuff that like we have learned and grown from. That we didn't just take everything he said as gospel. We, like, right. moved forward from that. And I think that's really cool. Right. and But, like, we would not... I don't think we would have had leaders like MLK or Malcolm X yeah. if it weren't for Garveyism and, and what he began in the United States. I mean, it was an organized, very organized movement before organized yeah. movements were really that powerful and logistically sound, I think. You know what I mean? Like, they set up so many different businesses and things, and organized movements did not do that then. Yeah, that's in, that's so impressive. The fact that he, like, made companies. Mm-hmm. The way that he, like, exploited capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> to, was really It's really cool. And it's really interesting to see how different the really early days of civil rights movements, like, were mm. to the peak of it in the 60s. and set. Like, that's really... That's very, very cool. Yeah, and the the most interesting interesting thing I think about this movement was that there weren't protests. No. Or, you know, rallies really involved. You know. No, he was just trying to make a life for folks after they went so long. Not well, and there one. were lectures and things, but it was more about, like, learning a new circumstance for living. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yes, because that because for so long they did not have that. Yeah, so that's what I got on Marcus Garvey. It's very cool. It was interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, February is obviously a short month, so we'll only have a couple of episodes. But the, you know, we'll have this one, and Amanda's going to do 
I'm going to do uh, Katherine Johnson next yeah, week. Yeah, so. Or two weeks from now, n- whatever. Two, next episode. <laughs> so we actually have, so, hey, we can tell you what the next one's going to be. Yes, for once for ever. I'm time. so excited. I'm excited to talk about her because I think she's very cool, but also I'm finally excited to do some West Virginia <laughs> West Virginia history. history. Not a ton, but she's from here, she and I think that that's so cool. We'll certainly I do I have more. a statue of her on my campus for no reason at all. <laughs> she did not go here, but she. But I have a tiny little Catherine Johnson. Did she live in Buchanan or something? Why did that happen? Nope. Okay. Nope. It just. I think somebody just donated to have it by our science building. Wow. We'll definitely talk more about her. And then March is Women's History Month, so we'll do some women's history yes. the next month. We'll definitely do more West Virginia history because if you're not West Virginia, you might not know this, but every West Virginian student in public schools has to take two different years of West Virginia history, once in elementary school and once in junior high. I think the same is true in other places, but I don't there, The fact that like West Virginia is the only state to become a state in the middle of the Civil War mm. uh, gives us a lot of like passion about oh, our yeah, state. Very so weird. like we had to learn all the counties and. Oh, I God. never did. Amanda learned them. I I did not commit my time or brain space. I to learned that. them. I, no, no, no. I memorized them. That's I what I mean. You them. memorized them. I didn't even do that. And I'm good at memorizing. <laughs> I love to memorize things. I do not know them now. I could tell you all the states in alphabetical order, but I couldn't tell you the counties in West Virginia. <laughs> anyway, that's what's coming down the pipeline. I'm not going to do a Google autofill today because. I don't really have any good questions to ask Google, so. <laughs> about Marcus Garvey. No, I Garvey. got him. I figured him out. Do you have any favorite thing about modern Ooh, times? Oh, yeah, sure. Let's do, a, let's do a modern times. Okay, well, you have to give us our musical intro. Know, just <clears throat> History's great, but today's cool, too. What's your favorite thing about modern times? I love this theme song. Thank you. It's very good for off the cuff. Thank you. Um, I do have one for today. What is yours? The new found, or I guess re-found, cultural interest in documentaries. Oh, that's a great one. I, I spent all day yesterday watching documentaries. I, that doesn't surprise me. And I've always liked documentaries. I've always kind of gotten into them. But I, I just think ever since, like, streaming services, I guess, is probably when it started again. Everybody loves a documentary. And I love how much we love them, whether they're true crime or natural history or, you know, whatever. I, I just love how into them we as a culture have become. Me too. And I also like it because we get to appreciate the people who work so hard to make those things, which oh, we didn't for a really, really long time. Yes. We just kind of were like, eh. Oh my God. When know? I was a kid, documentaries were boring. Yeah. But I love them. And so does everybody else. I love how much everybody loves them. And I recommend them to people. I'm like, have you seen? Oh, yeah. You you give me documentaries to watch all the time. <laughs> My Netflix time. list is all documentaries. It like, sure is. Have you seen The Empire of the Czars by Lucy Worsley? It's excellent. You should watch it. <laughs> like, very that. Very that. Yes. Do you have a Modern Times thing? I do. And it's musicals. <gasps> yes. I love a musical. I have been in such a mood for musicals lately. I watched Waitress earlier this week, oh. and then I made all my friends watch Rent yesterday. The stage um, version, not the movie. Don't yes, be a fool. the stage version. And I just, like, I'm in such a musical mood mm-hmm. right now. I love musicals so much. It's pretty great. I like a, yeah, I like an original musical. Um, Same. Yeah. Same. Very good modern times. All right, well, if you guys have suggestions for things that um, we can talk about in the future, if you have your favorite things about modern times that you would like us to talk about on the podcast, we definitely can. <laughs> you can email them to us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com 
Or you can follow us on Twitter at RTTPod. You can also find us on Facebook if you just search Remember That Time podcast. I don't remember. Sure. Remember that time. Probably. Sure. If you want to follow. This is my other favorite game is you not, not remembering, remembering the Facebook, Facebook every time. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at the real Anna Webb. I'm also that on all the other platforms. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter all across the internet. All over the internets. Branding. Branding. Thank you guys so much for listening. Oh, hey, you know what? If you're listening to this on iTunes. We would super love it if you could give us a rating or a little rate and a review. Ratings help bump us up, so when people start searching for history podcasts, they find us. So give us yeah. a little rating. We yeah, would love it. And um, we hope we'll talk at you again in a couple weeks. We hope you'll come back. Um, so until next time, remember that time. Mm-hmm.